0: Welcome to the Frontline Response to Health and Homelessness podcast series. This series is based on the articles published in the March 2020 edition of Parody Magazine, which is available on the link accompanying the podcast. That magazine and this series give voice to those with lived experience of homelessness, those working on the frontline, and those that support the sector in delivering services to people who are homeless. My name is Dan Fleming, and I'm delighted to introduce our host John Willis, who leads the inclusive health team for St Vincent's Health Australia. John will introduce our guests in just a moment. As we're recording during the COVID nineteen pandemic, both John and our guests will be with us by phone for this episode. John Willis, over to you. Thanks, Dan, and it's my pleasure to welcome back Beck
1: Howard to this podcast series. Welcome back. Bex, the service development manager at the Health Independence Program at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. She's the first person, I think possibly the only one we're going to interview twice. But she's been involved in more than one article, so she gets the privilege of talking to me twice. But today also, um, we've got George Hedbani, the manager of service development in Lord Housing, joining us as well. How are you, George? Yeah, hi. Great to have you on the podcast series as well and be part of this conversation about this particular article. So, this one, this article um, has a bunch of co authors, and it sounds like it's all about working in partnership and sharing data through what you've called a data linkage project. Now, I just want to alert people that, you know, data's not always the most exciting topic, um, and some people get a little bit um, tune out on this, but I'm sure both of you will assist us in seeing how important this work really is. So if I can begin with you, Berg, um perhaps you could outline for us where this program came from and then maybe just to tell us what data linkage actually is.
2: Sure. So a couple of years ago, we hosted a health and homelessness forum at St Vincent's and we had one of the launch housing leadership as a guest. And there's lots of discussion in the room about an anecdotal gut feel that we share a lot of clients with Launch Housing, and there must be considerable opportunity to strengthen our partnership and build new service delivery models together. But. The more we unpacked that, we realised we really couldn't quantify how many consumers were accessing services at both St Vincent's and launch, probably simultaneously, or, Mm. you know, one episode of Care Follows Another. We had a gut feel that there was a considerable number of people that were cycling between our services, but we really couldn't qualify their patterns of use or quantify how many people that meant. And so that conversation led to us embarking on this data linkage project to really understand the overlap of consumers that both organisations are supporting, but we have no visibility over that parallel world. Uh, And that was an important first step in redesigning how we actually better develop services together is to be actually quantifying the problem to start with. So data linkage in itself is generally about bringing together two or more sets of data or information from different sources that pertain to the same group of people or the same person. And the intention is to create a much fuller picture of the subject of interest. So if you've got half the jigsaw and I've got the other half of the jigsaw we bring our pieces together, we we know a lot more about the subject. Um, in, in, in this project, we were bringing together patterns of service usage from Launch's cohort of top 100 service users and a sample of St Vincent's cohort of 359 homeless consumers from an earlier study to identify the consumers common to both data sets. And the important thing about data linkage is that it's quite technically challenging and uh, our co-author data gurus, Sean from Launch and Andrew from St Vincent's, were pivotal to the success of this because we have to um, obviously... uh, protect the privacy of everybody through um, codes of letters and numbers known as statistical linkage keys to actually de-identify the individuals, but enable us to link them together.
1: Great. Well, that's a good explanation. And it's all these people behind these data that um, are individuals who are just going about their lives and using different services. So to a certain extent, this is the services starting to understand that bigger picture, of yeah. someone's life. So George, if I could bring you in, in now, um, what, what maybe were some of the limitations of your current data collection methods and how has this new, new approach enhanced your work?
3: Thanks, John. Um, look, I think there's many limitations to data collection and they can range from poorly defined data fields, poorly designed systems. Sometimes there's a disconnect between the reasons that certain data fields are collected and their usefulness to the people collecting them which means they're not always collected as well as they could. Sometimes we have poor instructions. Um, But in this case, I think the lack of coordination across what are related systems in the data that's been collected. So the main limitations here came from the data sets that are used by the hospitals in Victoria, probably in other Mm -hmm. states as well, and then in the sharing of data between sectors which are dealing in their own little bubble with the same cohort of people. Now, I know this isn't news to anyone who's worked in the sector, but we think we're narrowing it down to some very specific improvements um, that could be made which would lead to tangible long-term benefits. So just mm. in simply put, I think at the moment we're talking a different language. It's probably as simple as complicated as that. Those data collections really reflect those silos of health and homelessness, which I think is ironic cause, and doubly frustrating because we're part of the same Victorian Government Department of Health and Human Services. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I, think, yeah, take I just, think if I'm wrong, Beck, but it seems pretty hard based on what we've seen in the, the background research we did to this and in our own work to be counted as homeless in a Victorian hospital. The Alfred Hospital research in 2019 was pretty damning with that Victorian emergency minimum data set data underestimating homelessness presentations by a factor of 10. Based on yeah. that, unless someone's a visibly rough sleeping homeless, they're unlikely be counted as homeless in
2: a Victorian hospital. That's mm-hmm. right. And we use an awful lot of workarounds to try and be able to capture and count or quantify the number of people. But at the moment, the way the data systems are set up, the, there are a lot of limitations.
1: Yeah. So that, so that's it's, it's almost like you've got two parts of um, uh, two different service systems that are really focusing on different things and haven't really connected. And I know the hospital data has always been, um, and my, my limited checking of this is, Checking, um, connect, can, collecting people who are homeless in the hospital data sets always been one of the one of the struggling areas for the hospitals. I think so. That's really good, George. It's good to hear that. So let's move into the detail then of um, this particular project. So, what? So, George, what did this data linkage project find? What were the key outcomes?
3: Well, so as Beck said, as Beck said, we decided to compare two data sets to see what the overlaps were, and we were trying to understand obviously um, what those overlaps were, but also the gaps and sort of try to help us inform better practices and service delivery model development. So Mm. we had 100 of our highest frequent service users from Launch Housing, very complex individuals, multiple health issues, uh, mental health issues as well, AOD, and we had 359 from St Vincent's. And with this cohort, we expected a really high overlap, and we found it, but I don't Mm. think it was anywhere near as much as we expected So we had 59 of the top 100 frequent service users from launch over a four-year period were in the St Vincent's data. And then 48% of the 359 in the St Vincent's study were in the launch housing data. But, you know, how come the remaining clients in that study, all of whom were connected to homelessness services within St Vincent's, with Prague House and Cottage and Jobs? How come they weren't connected to launch housing, which is the largest homelessness service in the catchment? So that's a question Mm. I don't think we've resolved yet, but I think it's an issue we need to solve. Um, Mm. Of the people that were connected, we saw that they were high-impact clients. These were big consumers of costly services. And with the launch housing cohort, it was happening at quite a young age. They had a mean age of 36 They're already significantly using the emergency department where they had 9.1 ED presentations per client compared to 1.8 per client during that same period. And they're having close to five ambulance arrivals compared to less than two for most people. We also saw the nature of the contacts were slightly different. They were very high contacts between launch, uh, the contacts of the St Vincent's clients with launch housing when they were being made were three times higher than that of the average client. But the type of contact was with our crisis entry points. It wasn't actually with our long-term support services to the level that we would expect. So something was not going in terms of the continuity of care and the ongoing support that these clients needed, which meant that they weren't getting into long-term support. And the other thing that was missing was the, the acute mental health admissions. They were relatively low, we thought, at 14%. We knew from that launch housing data this was a cohort with really high levels of mental health and AOD comorbidity, but it wasn't showing up in the data. So what else were we missing? So I think in all of this, it opened up a lot of questions, which in hindsight is a very good thing, but at the time, you know, we were really scratching our heads up a little bit, wondering what it all meant. So I think these questions have led us into these areas of practice and policy improvements we might make within our two agencies, but also I think more widely the structural level.
1: Mm, okay. Well, look, maybe that's a good opportunity to bring back back into the conversation. So, Beck, just leading on from what George has mentioned there, so what does this new information have to do with you know possible policy implications and maybe how you might change the way you operate your services?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I think, we've, as we've just mentioned, um, the Special Homelessness Services are – predominantly reporting their minimum data set to the federal government and we know that hospitals are not collecting homelessness well and then they report to Victorian state government so with different definitions and standards um, there's a lot of opportunity for improvement there and uh, using the same definitions to match the way that specialist homelessness services are capturing this information and and particularly as George mentioned the um, study at uh, another metropolitan Melbourne hospital that found that you know, 8% of people accessing the emergency department meet the criteria for homelessness. And this is a big problem and one that we're not, I think, quantifying well at the moment. So fundamentally, I think within particularly metropolitan but and rural public hospitals, we need better identification of people experiencing homelessness that are accessing any point within our health service, whether that's our outpatient departments, emergency departments or inpatient care. We need to ask the right questions. And this is something we've been working on around how do we sensitively ask the right questions of people at the right time so that we're really getting the full picture of people's safe housing situation rather than what is presently collected which is often just the pointiest end of homelessness or the most visible homelessness in terms of rough sleeping and we need to ensure we're recording that information because at an individual level if we don't do this we're failing to identify people um And that just continues to contribute to the inequity of their access to specialist services and potentially poorer health outcomes. And at a service system level, it underestimates the true cost to public hospitals of managing their care. So our data has shown that many of these patients are presenting with very complex health issues and have very long and protracted hospital stays. And that that becomes very costly at an economic level to the health system. So if we're not collecting it and we're not measuring it, um, we're failing at both an individual and service system level and I think hmm. also the high degree of overlap that our data matching projects has shown has reinforced to us that we need to design services that create a bridge between health services and homelessness services and that's something that St Vincent's has um, been looking at for some time around building our step up step down sort of services and integrating housing within our homelessness services to make sure that we're, we're creating a bridge that people don't fall through the
1: cracks when they move between one service or the other. Mm. Just, just to clarify for my benefit here, um, you've talked about um, potentially up to 8 or 9% of emergency department presentations are people homeless. Is that right? Mm. Is that, That's right. The other side? What is yep. it currently, what's the data, you know, say at St Vincent's, what are you collecting? What, how low is that percentage?
2: Yeah, so I think that was a one-off sample that was done. And yep. what we know from the Victorian uh, admitted emergency data set is that around 0.8% um, or, you know, somewhere between 0. 05 and 1% of people, according to all data collected, presenting to public emergency departments, are homeless. But yep. when that was done as a manual screening exercise, which is this paper that we're referring to, where people yep. actually sat there and observed and surveyed every person coming through it was closer to 8% of people were meeting the wow. criteria for homelessness. And that, that, that um, disparity Under- is just huge.
1: Mm. Sorry, George?
3: So it's a huge undercount.
2: I mean, yeah,
1: it's massive there. undercount. Yeah. It's so that, that that sounds like the first and foremost thing that the health services can do is re- improve their recording of homelessness. That's the yeah, number yeah. one by oh, the sound Absolutely.
2: of it. Ask the right <laughs> questions and then have, a, have a, a way of recording it that is um, consistent. And then
1: we can work better with the homeless sector. Sorry, George.
2: Well, I was just
3: going to say that in the homelessness sector, we have a standardised data collection that is overseen by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Um, We define homelessness is very clearly defined, um, and there's a data collection manual. We collect data around housing type, tenure type, and occupancy type, and from that, we can, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare can discern if someone is experiencing what is. A dynamic experience of homelessness. Homelessness is much more than rough sleeping. It's mm. really, you know, there's a lot of, it's a dynamic and changing process. And, you know, people are familiar with things like couch surfing and crisis accommodations and rooming houses and things like that. So the people that are listening to this podcast probably understand that. But in terms of the data that's collected, if we get those data fields right, and we're thinking that perhaps if it was led nationally by, by a body like the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, Perhaps we could get rid of some of these silos between the sectors and get that data collection, you know, standardised across the states, um, mm. tertiary and mental health services. We could really get a much better handle on what the overlap is between these services.
1: Yeah, sounds great. Good suggestion. Oh well, we'll watch this space. How this develops. Now, just to move on to the the um, the elephant in the uh, community, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, I suppose we've been, you know, undertaking these interviews during this, this particular piece of work is quite interesting about what kind of implications this might have for homeless people and services. So I suppose my question to both of you, but I'll go to you George first, is there any additional measures or um, things we need to be considering around data collection and and work like this during this time and leading into the future?
3: Yeah, look, obviously, you know, we've banged on about trying to get standardised data fields here. That's important. Mm. Um, I think the the question of service coordination is is key to all of this. We've got lots and lots of silos working with the same cohort of people. Mm. And really, COVID-19 has illustrated that health and housing are really, really intimately connected. Like, how, housing is great healthcare in many ways, and it's a place where people can be treated, can be looked after, can develop, can can mm. develop their own personal health goals and become well again. But it also helps to prevent the spread of diseases, as we've quite clearly seen. And the Victorian government has spent a lot of money and homelessness services has spent a lot of money over the last three months housing people in or accommodating people in emergency accommodations. We've got 975 people in motels at the moment who mm. otherwise would have been on the streets and who, you know, who, who, if they'd had housing, they would know we wouldn't be spending that money, you know, on, on this short term stuff. But I think it's coordination between services. And underpinning all of that is a really good understanding of who we're working with. So some of the future implications are ideas like functional zero approaches to ending homelessness and having by name lists in the middle of that in which we know who the people are that are homeless in a particular area and then all of the services that are working with those people work together in a service coordination framework to end the homelessness of those people. And so you're working from the same information, you're most efficiently and effectively utilising your services. I think that's the sort of stuff that we're we're moving into now with the use of data. And here in Melbourne we've just started the Melbourne Homelessness Functional 0 project and we've yep. got one in the city of Port Phillip as well. So that's where a lot of these different sectors are coming together around this problem of homelessness.
1: Beautiful. And I love that housing and health. I think mm. that's one of the big messages out of this. Beck, you've I've already asked you this question before, but did you did you have any extra addition to add particularly around data?
2: Yeah, I think in the, the COVID situation, you know, it's so rapidly evolving and it's so front and centre for us in working in health at the moment. So uh, I do have another reflection for you this week, John. Oh good, <laughs> that's a, to, go for as, it. Yeah, I think the since we spoke. And I think um the uh, I, I think what I've really thought about in this last week is that obviously the COVID situation is adding a further layer of challenge for people who are already extremely vulnerable and needing to access health or housing services that find that challenging under, you know, normal circumstances. Um, And, you know, we've recently had cases of women with dependent children who are fleeing unsafe family and domestic situations who, of course, need to um, access safe accommodation, but they need to prove their COVID negative status first. And, you know, the pragmatics for these clients of getting that test was so complex and Mm. introduced yet another barrier, another delay in an already precarious situation. And these cases, to me, this week really highlighted for our health services, the need to provide advocacy and enormous flexibility uh, under these new paradigms of a COVID world um, to really support these people to access the services they need because, you know, we put up safety barriers to make sure we're not spreading COVID, but those safety barriers, you know, in in terms of people having to prove their COVID negative status, create another barrier of access for these women to get to a safe accommodation. So Mm. that's my reflection on the COVID world this week. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, look, we're coming to the end of our conversation, so thank you so much but um, to both of you. But if I could just start um, the final question I've asked throughout this series is what's a story or an encounter that inspires you in the work that you're doing and continuing to, and it keeps you going to make a difference in this area? So, um, Beck, maybe just to you, have if, if, if you got a, a different story than the last time?
2: Yeah, I, um, I had a light bulb moment that same health and housing forum that I spoke about earlier when one of our nurse unit managers spoke about the less visible footprint of homelessness, she spoke about a shift that she'd observed with more and more middle-aged women who were inpatients in her ward and they might have recently lost their job or left an unsafe domestic situation which was then compounded by a health crisis which is how they came to be uh, an inpatient within our services and they were very unexpectedly finding themselves on the brink of homelessness and Our nurse unit manager spoke about the way that these women were too proud to disclose that they were almost homeless or had nowhere safe to go when they left hospital. And those conversations made me think long and hard about how we go about sensitively inquiring as to people's housing safety and mm. ensuring that when they leave our health service, they have access to safe um, safe housing. And I think that that really kick-started in my mind the need to do this work and to better understand, ask the right questions and make sure we record it and make sure we design services with that in mind.
1: Beautiful. Thanks, Beck. George, story or an encounter that's inspired you in your work?
3: Yeah, um... I had a few, but I was thinking about a time I used to work in Assertive Outreach. And I'd been working, well, I knew this guy who'd been sleeping on the banks of the Yarra. We knew he'd been, the service knew him, and he'd been sleeping there for a couple of years. He was a bit older than me at the time. He was in his early 50s. He was quite angry, he presented as quite confused. Sometimes he was aggressive. He'd been banned from some services. And I personally found it quite hard to engage with him. And I'd sort of mentally put him, just for the moment, in that two hard basket. You know, there were so many other people that were equally hard off, and they did want to work with me, and so I was sort of standing off a little bit and wasn't really working with him very much. Then an allied health worker from North Yarra Community Health in Fitzroy, now co-health, a dietitian, she came to me and she said she had a good relationship with him, and he he'd been coming to see her, and she felt that there was a chance that if we worked together, we could get him housed. So. All right, you've got the relationship. Let's try and parlay that into something that might work in the long term. So we gave it a go. We we visited him together at the river and we talked and she sort of helped me to start again and sort of build that bridge and build up some trust with him. And so doing that, I was able to finish up his housing application and then a transitional housing vacancy came up and I argued for him really hard and he got it. And our service it was home ground then. We we helped him to get settled into his new flat and to adjust to life in the flat. That wasn't easy, that took a couple of years and it was a bit touch and go with his neighbours and at times it was it was hard. But we got there and then he got his public housing offer and he got a nice place right on the air actually, not far from where he used to camp. That mm. was fifteen years ago and I mention it now because I live near his place and I see him regularly riding his bike, visiting local shops, and sometimes we stop and talk. He's still housed, he's happy. He's found, he's somehow really all he needed was a house. So for me, I I can't forget him. It's a pretty clear lesson. Just everyone needs a home.
1: Yeah, and and George, that that encouragement to go back again and again. We've heard in this podcast series to, to stay in there with people, even though they're going through some hard times and their behaviour might be full on. And that's a beautiful story there of, um, of of hanging in there. So well done. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation. So thank you very much, Beck and George. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you both today.
2: Thanks, John.
0: To subscribe to a printed copy of Parity magazine, visit chp.org.au forward slash Parity. This podcast series has been developed by St. Vincent's Health Australia. For more information about St. Vincent's, visit www.svha.org.au. The music track for this podcast is called Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod, host of incompetech.filmmusic.io, and is licensed under the Creative Commons 4.0 by Attributions License. This information, information about our guests and more, can be found in the text under the podcast description. Thanks for listening.